before I get going, a little bit of housekeeping. There's a number I want you to remember. 965 is the number, 965. That is the number that might appear on that black screen over there. My wife is gone this weekend, and I would ask the mothers of the church to hear my cry. I, unless you want the sermon to be shorter, which might be the case. Uh, if that number appears up there, uh, someone help. The queen of my castle is gone, and I'm just Quasimodo. So, um, The epistle lesson this morning is uh, the beginning of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, where we're going to read verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we begin our series on Ephesians, we pray that you would be with us. We pray especially that the text this morning would speak to us, that you would work it into our hearts, so that in the end it might bear fruit. And we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. One of the things that's always interesting about Paul is that folks tend to get him wrong. Now, I don't mean they get his theology wrong, what they tend to sometimes get wrong is the tone of his voice. It's difficult, uh, those of you who live in the 21st century, of course, know, it's difficult to hear tone of voice when you're reading a text. Almost everyone can tell of a story where they sent a text that they meant to be silly and someone took it as serious. Or an email that they meant to be lighthearted that was read as you being upset with something. 
You don't get body language when you're just reading words. You don't get uh, all these types of indicators as to the emotional or the personal um, umph behind a text. And I think that's what we have here in the beginning of Ephesians. If we're looking for things that help us understand it, I think one of the things you have to look at is what is Paul's intentions behind it? I think for most of us, when we come to Ephesians 1, it feels very doctrinal. That dreaded word predestination shows up twice. What does that mean? There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot, there's a lot of long sentences. There's a lot of all kinds of stuff in there. And some of you might be thinking, can we just get to the chapters on marriage and the practical side of things instead of doing all this preamble? What is going on in this text? I think what we're having here usually when we're coming to Ephesians is a bit of that discombobulation. You see, because what Paul is actually doing in this letter is different from his other letters, except for Colossians. And it doesn't quite jump off the page, but I think once you get a two easy couple of things about it, you'll actually see what's going on here. You see, because Paul is writing this for a very specific purpose, and he has some of the most wonderful phrases and descriptions of the Christian life here just already in 14 verses. Things that we wrap our lives around, things that guide us day by day are all smashed almost into this, these 14 verses right out of the gate. The problem with reading Ephesians as we start this series is you have to know its context and you have to know why it's different. Paul's other letters, almost every single one of them, is written for a purpose. There's some group of knuckleheads he has to set straight. Whether it's the Galatians and their attempt to, to reappropriate the Jewish law, or the Corinthians and their craziness, doing things like sleeping with one's stepmother and these types of things, because that's what free grace means. You can do whatever you want. There's always these contexts, these issues, and part of the challenge with those books is you have to go, okay, here's what Paul is saying to this situation, and then you triangulate to what the, the overarching theme is. This book doesn't have, seem to have a purpose in, in the sense of correcting any one thing. It's written to this group in, in Ephesus, though it's not actually written to Ephesus per se, it's actually written to Ephesus and all the surrounding areas. In fact, some of the earliest manuscripts we have of Ephesians doesn't even say Ephesus. It's just, someone just kind of took it off, it's like, to, to y'all, it's kind of the thing. It, Ephesus was a city, frankly, very much like Jacksonville a large city that had a lot of communities around it that would have probably been summed up as part of Ephesus. But in fact, it's, it's about half a million folks, which is a, quite a dense population if you count Ephesus, which is a quarter of a million in all the areas around it. Paul is writing to them. He's writing to a large group of folks. He's not writing to either a specific church or a specific group that has specific problems. And he's giving them a bigger picture. He's pulled that lens back, and he's saying some grand, big things right here in the beginning, and he's going to say them throughout the book. But what he's doing is he's looking at a large group of pagans. Not Jewish folks, not predominantly Jewish folks, not mixed folks. He's talking to pagans, mostly. There are some Jews there, of course. And as we go through the book, you'll see that there's lots of talk about in your former life, when you walked in darkness, when you were that, when you were that, 
the Jews were closer to the covenant and you were far off, now you're brought near. There's a lot of that language. He's very much specifically talking to pagans, to those who worshipped a pantheon of gods, to those who walked through markets and saw meat sacrificed to idols. Ephesus was actually very well, very much known for a fertility cult there in the city. Some of you might have seen it. If you recognize it, it is this Ephesus statue, and it's this tall thing that would sit there, and it's a, it's a female character. And from her shoulders to her waist, we're not quite sure. There's different interpretations. She's either covered in breasts or she's covered in bull testicles. I don't know why they thought this was nice, but this is what they're doing. Well, it, in either case, in either interpretation, it's fertility. It's either mother's milk or it's uh, the male side of the fertility side of the fertility cult. It's all about um, uh, prosperity and growth and all these types of things. If you read the book of Acts, there's all types of problems related to these idols and to these gods in the pagan world. They don't quite like this gospel thing. And so what Paul is writing to is a very specific context that doesn't really have an isolated problem he has to address. You might say it's one of the times in the New Testament where Paul gets to just kind of say everything at once. And in fact, the 14 14 verses we just read is exactly that. Believe it or not, all 14 verses there in your Bibles, verse 1 to 14 in the Greek is one sentence. Now, if you are an English grammar walk, or if you've ever taught English grammar, you would have had your red pen out at some point, asking for semicolons and periods and commas. Paul, though, here is just simply going and going and going for 14 verses in one sentence. In fact, the entire book of Ephesians is made up of eight sentences. The entire thing. Notice the tone of voice doesn't jump off the page in our verses, but what is Paul doing? He's erupting in the first 14 verses. It's not a cold, calculated, slow-reasoned kind of disquisition. He's erupting in praise. In fact, what he's doing here is a very Jewish thing. It's called barakah. Uh, A barakah is actually what we did today in service at the beginning when we said, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, etc., etc., in the call to worship. We do call response. Why do we do that? This is going back to the Old Testament. There, There were always these senses in which you would say, praise be to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul starts there, and it's almost as if the old switch kicks in, the old Jewish uh, scholar in him. Now a Christian kicks in, and he just starts going with this effusive praise over and over and over again about the wonders of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So it's not a slow, calculated, cold book. It's an eruption. It's a book that says this is so important, what Christ has done, that he almost can't stop his pen from moving across the page. And he just keeps going and going and going, and it comes out like this. So what I like to say is what Paul is doing here, metaphorically, is he's not writing a journal article or an Encyclopedia Britannica article. What he's doing here is he's describing a car accident to people who didn't see it. He's describing 9-11 to those who didn't see the footage, let's say. 
He's saying there is this amazing, complex, pivotal moment that has changed. And I've got to tell you why it's different now. This happened, therefore all of these other things have changed. This, this amazing thing that Christ has done now means all of this has changed. Therefore, he says, knowing that is what leads to the change. So Ephesians is very actually conceptually a very easy book to get. Six chapters, split it down the middle. For three chapters, he's going to tell you what has changed. And then for three chapters, he's going to tell you how that applies to you. For three chapters, he's got this big lens. And for three chapters, he says, now let's talk about how this changes you. Very simple. Well, let's talk about these 14 verses. Now that we know a little bit about this book, let me tell you a couple things about what Paul is doing here. He's being very specific, very pointed in the way that he wants us to approach the gospel. And I'm going to give you two things. One, he points to us being in Christ. And then secondly, he points to the difference that that makes in us. So first, in Christ, what does that mean? Well, if you look at those 14 verses, believe it or not, even though they are one sentence, 15 times, 15, he either says in Christ or in whom, in Christ or in whom, back and forth and back and forth. Make no mistake about this. At no point does he give us any wiggle room for believing that this had anything to do with us. When he breaks out in this eruption in these first 14 verses, he doesn't say, okay, y'all, let's, let's talk about how your salvation came to you and you worked this out and you have decided to follow Christ and this is all about you. Like a, like a gunshot, he keeps saying, in Christ, you were in him, in the heavenly places, all these things, back and forth and back and forth. It's almost as if even us, the Christians, are the spectators in our salvation. In fact, in Paul's language, that's exactly what we are. Because the fact is, is for all of us, the sneaky way that we can convince ourselves that it's about us, and it's about our effort, and it's about our, our work, and it's about how screwed up we are, is only natural. But let me go ahead and give you a essential truth for every single one of you. You're all screwed up. What you tend to do is you look at your neighbor to figure out if you're better than somebody else. You're wearing dirty clothes and you look to see if someone else's clothes are dirtier. But for the gospel, having dirty clothes at all means that we are soiled, stained, broken. For some of us it leads to arrogance, for some of us it leads to depression, for some of us it leads to all kinds of different things. But the fact is, is everyone in this room and everyone you come in contact with is a covenant breaker. And a covenant breaker deserves the covenant curse. The covenant curse is death. It is axiomatic. It's across all time and space. Every human you come in contact with is a covenant breaker. And so what Paul has done here is he's again squashing this idea that there's a better than folk out there. There are the sneeches with stars versus the sneeches without stars or flip it back and forth, whatever it might be. Those are the good ones and these are the bad ones. Paul will hear, hear, and as you keep going through the chapters, he'll say, look, the Jews were closer, but that's a relative close, closeness, but they were still cut off in the ultimate sense of the word. Now we're both through Christ, both the Jew and the Gentile brought close 
brought in to the heavenly places. And and he says it all right here. I I always get a chuckle out of this, and I tell my students, do you stop at that phrase, in the heavenly places, and go, huh? Or when you get to chapter 2, he talks about, uh, or a little bit later, he talks about us dwelling with Christ in the heavenly places. And I always look at my students and say, do you feel right now, right this moment, you know, when you, with your back aching, uh, the, the, the stress of bills and money in life, that you are seated in the heavenlies? No, of course not. We all feel like the same jerks and sinners that we always are. What this is doing here for 14 verses is just hammering in Christ, in him. As a spectator, he has done the work. We've just came out of the Easter season where that was the theme again and again and again. It ain't about you. You can't do anything for this. You need the covenant keeper. We covenant breakers can't then fix the covenant. You need a covenant keeper. And because we're all broken, because we're all breakers of this covenant, therefore what ends up happening is we end up needing someone to fulfill the law, to keep it in righteousness. And lacking that, not having that, we need Christ. In the history of the church, we call this the law. The law is a big concept. It has you know, the big L, this kind of a thing. And we always say that the law is like a mirror. The, you know, the joke, Chuck tells it too. No one blames the mirror when you're ugly. The law is not the problem. The problem is us. The law just kind of holds up and says, are you this good? No. Are you, did you do this? No. How about this? Are you not doing these things? Yeah, I'm not doing those things. It just keeps going and going and going. The goal of all that, though, is not to make Christians a bunch of sourpuss, down in the mouth, we hate ourselves kind of thing. Rather, the point is that we don't say those things and we lie to ourselves about how good we really are. That we, when we have trouble in our marriage, you have trouble with your kids, you have trouble at work, whatever it might be. In the end, you look across the row and you see somebody else that might be having it a bit worse and you go, oh, yeah, they're not as good as I am. We have this tendency to always say, I'm doing just fine. You know, I'm okay and you're okay. It's all going fine. But what, what all this ends up doing, though, is just simply lying. But the Christian isn't the person who just simply runs around pointing out sins. Rather, we point out sins because we want to point to Christ. We point out the flaws in us, not for self-righteous bigotry. We point out the flaws in our world because the world is confused and it tells itself that it's all right, and we tell ourselves the same thing. Paul here says, only in Christ, only in Christ, only in him. So why do we say in the heavenly places? Because that's where Christ is. And we are united in him, connected in him. We contribute at that point nothing to our salvation. Easter, you might say, is a spectator sport. (laughs) Jesus doesn't ever at any point say, come along, folks, and and help me out. In fact, by the end there, he is all alone. Only he can bear that weight. So why is Paul doubling down on this? Well, that's when we get to the second point, which is Paul's instructions here. When Paul is going over and over and over again about the spiritual blessings we have, which, which by the way, he means is the Spirit itself, that we have the down payment of the Spirit. 
What is going on in Ephesus at this point, and you're going to see it as the book unfolds, is a lot of the pagans there are getting quite nervous about the world around them. They've come out of this world, and they don't have a bunch of Jewish Christians believers, like, say, Peter was for a time, saying, oh, yeah, you sit over there, and I'm going to sit over here because I'm kosher. They don't have that tension. What they have is a tension between their community and the world around them. They don't know if they need to separate. They don't know if they can still participate in the workplace. They don't know if they can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's a constant uh, crisis for a while there in the New Testament. Everything they're touching is blood-soaked demon worship. It's in the book of Ephesians that Paul talks about the, the powers of the air. There is a struggle that these Christians are worried about. The world around them seems dark and bleak, and they might embrace salvation, but what they're sitting there saying is, is, how fast can I get out of this world? How fast can I move on to heaven, or whatever we might say in modern English? This world is broken. Once I've embraced sin, once I know things are broken, once I own my own sin, this is an instinct of all of us as we turn around and say, this place is awful. This world, this cancer-ridden paganized, horrible, secular world. How dare it have anything to do with me? How dare anyone go out into the marketplace? We need to kind of cloister ourselves and pull back. Only Christian friends, only Christian communities, only Christian things. We don't want to see anything of this world in our midst. And there's always a certain hesitation, and it sh there should be on some level. Paul tells us not to be involved with these things. But notice there at the end, Paul says that what is the goal is in heaven and on earth. You see, because for a lot of us, when we say that, when we read rather, that Paul says you've been given every spiritual blessing, we take spiritual to mean not worldly. Something anti-material, something mystical, abstract, whatever it might be. But you got to ask yourselves, why by the end of the book is he talking about marriage and kids and stuff? If all he wants to give you is spiritual blessing and not really be focused on this world, why is he talking about something as complex and challenging as two people living together and they're both sinners? The fact of the matter is, is the spiritual blessing is coming to this earth. It's coming, it's infusing it, it's changing it. It's going to, by the end, if you get to the book of the end of Revelation, it's going to finally be put into its fullness in the consummation, as we say. I had a professor used to say, folks, we have been betrothed and we set our vows to Christ. We're, on the, we're in the car driving to the honeymoon hotel. And I used to stop and think, what does that mean? You know what he means is, it feels as if we're married, but there is still something that feels like the world around us is collapsing and destroying the church. If you don't believe me, just check Facebook. Everyone seems to be losing their mind whenever something pagan happens in a pagan world. Holy moly, pagans act like pagans. How dare they? What usually tends to happen, though, is we get this kind of despondency about us. As if everything around us is falling apart. That's like trying to figure out Jacksonville by watching the nightly news. All you see are the negative stories, all you hear are the negative press. What you need to, though, notice in Paul is that he's going to be honest about those things. 
He's not going to turn a batted eye to real sin. But what Paul knows, and what every Jew knows who read the Old Testament, is this is God's world. This world does not belong to the kingdoms of Satan, his dominions, or to the rebellion. God doesn't overthrow the world and then let it go. He is not going to make us disembodied sort of spirits floating in the heavens playing a harp. He gets this world back. And it is already true in heaven. Christ has ascended. We are with him. He conquered. What Paul's going to say is, is that matters now. It doesn't matter only when you die. It matters now. It changes now. It changes things now. It means that husbands can learn to be better lovers and supporters and tender with not only their wife, but with their children. It means that children, heaven forbid, learn to honor their parents. It means that those in the workplace learn to be obedient and kind and compassionate even when somebody does you wrong. It means that you can confess even the darkest sins because it's not about you, it's about Christ. And if you're on pornography, if you're dealing with stress, if you're dealing with anger, if you have depression, there are all types of these things that are too dark to name. Why are you hiding them? Christ has already conquered and paid for those, and he's going to apply, as Paul says here, every spiritual blessing in this life now. Why hold back? Why sit back and merely wait for the end when it's all wiped clean, when you can confess these things freely? when these things no longer have to torment you and haunt you. Because what Paul is saying here is, is that stand up to the point of heaven and look down on this world and see if the problems right now pale in comparison. Come up to the top. And that is exactly why he uses the word predestination twice. That's why he talks about God's plan, God's foreknowledge, all these types of things. He's not doing systematic theology there, though there's certainly an element to that. What he's saying is, is you pull that lens up, you get way up high, and you look down on the world, and you see what God has planned for us. And suddenly all these small things, the traumas around us, the, the problems, these things don't destroy us, they refine us. They don't define us, they make us more like Christ. Because in the end, the reality of the Christian life is not about Christ started it and I have to finish the race in the sense that I have to contribute something. Rather, Christ has accomplished all of it, Paul says here. And the rest of our life is this infusing of that into us, changing us. You've probably all heard the old analogy. It's been used a lot. I think the story has grown with the telling. I'm not quite sure which artist said it. Some say Michelangelo, some say another. But the famous line is, is that someone asks Michelangelo or whomever, how do you carve out a statue? And he said he just knocks away the pieces of stone that aren't, aren't the picture that he's trying to make. Knocks away the things that aren't really there. And there are all kinds of analogies like this. But what's the point? It is already, Paul says, accomplished. So the tensions of this life, the problems you have, the setbacks it feels, the ongoing sin, do not jeopardize the beginning. Rather, they are the final steps to the end. It's amazing, though, that Paul, in the midst of talking to a world that is, let's just say, anxiety-ridden, doesn't sit there and just say, there, there, I know, I know, it's okay. Rather, he says, come up with me to heaven and look down. 
and see if those anxieties are real. And he says, because there are times throughout the Old Testament, there are times throughout all types of places where we didn't know what the mystery of God's revelation was. Now, though, we know. Because Christ came. He says, he predestined us before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, the simple fact of it means is God moved first. If that's all you take away from that, that's fine. That's all you need. We could talk more about it. In fact, lots of people talk lots about it. Usually pretty boring. At least the way they talk about it. But the fact of the matter is, is the core of that idea is that God moved first on you. And that he has this blessing. He has this wonderful uh, redemption that he is applying to your life. He both accomplished it and is applying it there then. So what Paul is saying, and he's going to say as the chapters unfold, why worry? If he started this, he's going to finish it. If this is his world, he's going to redeem it. And if you see ongoing sin and you get to those last three chapters, he says, Christ wants those too. He doesn't just want your soul. He wants how you raise your kids. He wants how you handle your marriage. He wants it all. And he is Lord of it all. And so therefore, looking down from the big picture, as Paul does here in these first 14 verses, means we have comfort and we have practicality. We have every day-to-day life. And we get to see that when God is in charge, the fact of the matter is, is it's okay. It's not about us. It's about him. Let's pray. Father, for the times that we think we're in charge, we repent. For the times we think that you have fallen asleep at the wheel, we repent. But Lord, thank you for Paul's words here that tell us that you have accomplished salvation, that you have accomplished it all by sending your Son. But Lord, in our lives, sometimes we struggle. We struggle with knowing Are you really at work sometimes? It's not always obvious. We're still just children. But Lord, let us know your grace. Be at work by your Spirit in us day by day, strengthening us, refining us, convicting us, giving us freedom by grace. And do that, Lord, we ask, in the name of your Son and on account of his work. And all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.